Welcome to In Dark Places, Eat Fresh. Just to give a little update on some of the weird happenings around here. I've got a couch back here in this recording room that I use, and I sleep on it pretty often. On the morning of March 16th, 2020, something woke me up knocking on my window. And I was kind of mad because I was sleeping good. And I went back to sleep, and just a couple minutes later, it knocked again. And that same thing happened about a week before that as well. Something knocked on the window and woke me up. We have a fence around our backyard and no one can get in there. Uh, Bigfoot could probably step over the fence, I guess, but there's no footprints around the window. So yeah, on the night of March 16th, 2022, I was working on this very episode and there was a different kind of knock on the window sounded like something just kind of brushed a hand against it or something. It wasn't actually a knock. So I put my coat on and I went outside and looked around. There was nobody out there, of course. A couple minutes later, I came back in the house and I went to the bathroom. I heard another noise that sounded like it was up on top of the house, right above the bathroom. So maybe it's a mothman. I don't know. Crazy things going on around here. And now, here is... Your Nicholas Cage Meltdown of the Week. Oh, but the potion is supposed to change color. It's not changing color. It's not changing color. I call upon the elements wind, rain, etc. Transform my potion and collect heal. Clack heal, clack heal, clack, clack, clack. Here comes my friend, Mr. Haunted, sprinting down the hallway like he's Michael Dwayne Johnson. So we're talking about aliens this week, and the first thing I did was type into the search, I saw an alien, to try to find some alien stories. And uh, Men in Black kept coming up, so I thought that would be an interesting angle. Uh, so the UFO sightings that launched the Men in Black mythology. In all of their different incarnations, the Men in Black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomenon. It's possible that the story of the Men in Black, the mysterious figures that would become the subject of fascination in UFO conspiracy circles, and eventually break into mainstream popular culture can be traced back to one day, June 27th, 1947. It's quite possible that it all started with a man, a boy, a dog, on a boat. As the story goes, Harold Dahl, that's spelled D-A-H-L, was on a conservation mission on the Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington's Maury Island, gathering logs when he saw six donut-shaped obstacles hovering about a half mile above his boat. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son, Charles, on the arm, as well as the family dog, who didn't survive the ordeal. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Chrisman. A skeptical Chrisman went back to the scene to look for himself, 
and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They end up at a local diner where the man was able to recount an extraordinary detail what Dahl had just experienced. Because I'm weird, I instantly, I, I picture these two, uh, you know, across the table at a diner somewhere, and I wonder what they're eating. Do they get like, scrambled eggs and bacon and omelet, coffee and toast? I don't know, but it, it really bothers me. I like to research this further. So, what I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said. The supposed events of Maury Island have continued to fuel conspiracy theories to this day, even though a U.S. government investigation deems it a hoax, after Dahl and Chrisman later admitted as much. In particular, the mention of the man in the black suit would evolve into a key obsession for UFO enthusiasts and spread into American pop culture thanks to a comic book series and a blockbuster movie trilogy in all of their incarnations, the men in black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomena. They almost always wear black suits and hats with dark sunglasses, drive black cars, and, arrived, and arrive in groups of two or three. Some describe them as one would an FBI agent, while others recall the men in black as having strange appearances, sometimes with supernatural features like glowing eyes and strange complexions. The first call was made to Kenneth Arnold, a pilot who had his own alleged UFO exciting on June 24, 1947, near Mount Rainier, Washington. Though it happened three days after the Maury Island incident, it was first widely reported sighting and it touched off the saucer sensation, as was written in 1949 government report on flying saucers. The report states that Dahl and Crimson reached out to a Chicago magazine in an attempt to sell their story, and the magazine editor then contacted Arnold, hoping he could verify their account. Arnold then summoned two officers of Army A2 Intelligence to aid in the investigation of Dahl and Christman's claim, according to the report. In July 1947, two Army A2 Intelligence officers came to investigate. After leaving in their B-25 the next day, the plane caught fire and crashed, killing both officers and doing nothing to quiet UFO conspiracists. But the Maury Island story gained little notice in the UFO community until Barker's 1956 book, in which he wrote on the file of the Maury Island case that largely consisted of the writings of Ray Palmer, the Chicago Magazine editor referred to in the government's report. Barker went on to connect the dots between the man who wore the black suit who took Dahl to breakfast and three similarly dressed men who allegedly visited a UFO enthusiast named Albert K. Bender in 1953. It was Bender who almost single-handedly ushered in the plague of the men in black, just as Arnold inaugurated the era of the UFO. Our friend Nick Redfern wrote in his book, The Real Men in Black, but it was Barker's book that told Bender's story, thus introducing the concept of the men in black to a much wider audience. It still has an important legacy, said Robert Schaefer, a UFO researcher. Before its publication, nobody outside a very narrow group of subscribers to Flying Saucer newsletters have ever, had ever heard of Bender or his men in black. 
Barker described Bender's visitors as three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their faces, three men who walk in on you and make certain demands, three men who know that you know what the saucers really are. Bender, in his own 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, described the men in black in much more frightening language. They floated about a foot off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Hamburg style. The faces were not clearly discernible, but their hats, because their hats were uh, partly hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight bulbs. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pains above my eyes became almost unbearable, wrote Bender. Bender would go on to write several more books related to the paranormal and UFOs, including 1970's The Silver Bridge, which helped spread the story of another popular paranormal figure, the creature known as Mothman. But how much of his writing was done in good faith has been called into question by many in the UFO research community. Barker made it clear to me that he did not take the Men in Black or Mothman very seriously, says Schaefer, who corresponded with Barker on occasion. However, he believed that there was still something mysterious about the whole UFO and paranormal thing. Regardless of Barker's motives, countless Men in Black encounters have been reported since They Knew Too Much was published nearly 60 years ago, and at least one more movie is on the way. This story is one of my favorites of all time. At about 5.50 p.m. on April 24, 1964, Patrolman Lonnie Zamora of the Police Department in Socorro, New Mexico, was alone in his Pontiac giving chase to a speeding motorist who was heading out of town. Suddenly, he heard a roar and, at the same time, saw a flame in the sky, bluish and orange and strangely static as it descended some distance away. Fearful that a nearby dynamite shack might blow up, the patrolman gave up chasing the motorist and headed off over rough ground toward the point where the flame had come down. After three attempts, he forced his car to the top of a ridge and drove slowly westward. He stopped when suddenly he saw a shiny, aluminum-like object below him, about 150 to 200 yards south of his position. Zamora said it looked like a car on end, perhaps turned over by some kids. Then he saw two humanoid figures in white coveralls close to the object. He estimated later that they were about four feet tall. One of them looked straight at him and seemed to jump. Zamora was wearing clip-on sunglasses over his prescription spectacles and couldn't distinguish any features or headgear at that distance. The patrolman now accelerated, thinking that whoever the strangers were, they might be in need of help. The shape he had seen was a sort of vertical oval, and looking down, he could see that it was supported on girdle-like legs. When the terrain became too rough for the car to go any further, he radioed his headquarters to say that he was near the scene of a possible accident and would proceed on foot. As Zamora left the car, 
he heard two or three loud thumps, then someone hammering or slamming a door. Those thumps were a second or two apart. When he was about fifty paces from the object, there was a loud roar, which rose gradually in pitch. The humanoid figures were nowhere to be seen. At the same time, he could see a blue and orange flame rise from the ground, leaving a cloud of dust. Zamora beat a hasty retreat toward his car, and as he reached it, turned to see the oval shape, now horizontal, rising toward the level of the car. Frightened by the continuing roar, he ran on and dived for shelter over the edge of the ridge. When he realized the noise had ceased, he raised his head from his hands and saw the UFO still in the air and moving away from him, about 15 feet above the ground. Safely cleared the dynamite shack and continued to rise gradually. Watched by the patrolman, who was retracing his steps to the car. As he called up to the radio officer, he watched it accelerate away to clear a mountain range and disappear. Zamora had seen a kind of strange insignia about 18 inches high on the side of the object, and while he was waiting for his sergeant to arrive, he decided to make a sketch of it. Sergeant Sam Chavez was soon on the scene. Had he not taken a wrong turn, he would have arrived in time to see the craft. What's the matter, Lonnie? he asked. You look like you've seen the devil. Maybe I have, replied Zamora. Zamora pointed out to Sergeant Chavez the fire that was still burning in the brush where the UFO had stood. When they descended to the site, they found four separate burn marks and four depressions, all of similar shape made, they assumed, by the legs of the landing gear. On three of those marks, the dense soil had been pushed down about two inches, and dirt had been squeezed up at the sides. The fourth pad mark, less well defined, was only one inch deep. When engineer W.T. Powers investigated the case, he estimated that the force that produced the marks was equivalent to a gentle settling of at least a ton on each mark. He also pointed out an interesting fact about the positions of the marks. Measurements show that the diagonals and quadrilateral intersect at right angles, and then the midpoints of the sides all lie on the circumference of a circle. Mr. Powers noted that one of the burn marks occurred on the intersection of the diagonals and speculated that, assuming the linkage among the legs was flexible, this would mean the burn was immediately below the center of gravity of the craft and might indicate the position of the blue and orange flame seen by Patrolman Zamora. Four small round marks were found within the quadrilateral on the side farthest from where Patrolman Zamora had stood. These were described as footprints. The Sakura incident was widely reported in the press and generated immense excitement throughout the world. The U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book usually ruled out UFO sightings with only one witness, but Socorro Patrolman Zamora's story was so plausible that it was decided to carry out 
intensive on-the-spot investigations. This was one case in which Project Blue Book was forced to admit defeat. The apparition could not be explained as any known device or phenomenon. Dr. J. Allen Hynek admitted that he was more puzzled after completing the investigation than when he had arrived in Socorro. He commented, Maybe later there is a simple natural explanation for the Socorro incident, but having made a complete study of the events, I do not think so. This is one of my favorite alien stories, and uh, I don't think it gets enough attention. Aurora, Texas is a quiet town in Wise County. The city is actually quite small, Aurora City Councilman Jason Priaka says. It's only about six square miles. It goes up the hill and down the valley, and that's about it. Priakos said it's a hidden gem with a population of only 1,700 people. Normally people say, where's Aurora? And he said, you gotta say, well, it's between Boyd and Rome, out 287 towards Decatur. This small town is connected to a story that sounds like it's from a galaxy far, far away. Well, in 1897, we had an event here, Priaco said. We had an alien crash site. That crash happened near a site now dubbed Area 114. It's now a photo op landing zone for tourists. But as the story goes, an unidentified flying object and its pilot crashed into a windmill in 1897, 50 years before the famed Roswell, New Mexico UFO crash. Townspeople heard a big crash, and several went to investigate, and they found a wreckage of material they've never seen before. They found a being, which they called, not of this world. Articles were written about it in local papers. The pilot, described as not of this world, died from his injuries and was given a Christian burial in the town cemetery. The townspeople gave him the name Ned. Ned the alien. People now visit Ned's gravesite, often leaving behind trinkets. Watches, I've seen keychains, I've seen electronics, Priaco said. Because of the Christian burial, the grave cannot be exhumed for official investigation without permission from next of kin. That permission seems unlikely if Ned was not of this world. Still, that doesn't stop people from trying to solve the mystery. They've brought in ground radar, they've looked at the gravesite, and they've gone to other parts of the cemetery, and they can confirm something is buried in that location. There may not be definitive proof of Ned the alien crashing and being buried in Aurora, but it's definitely a good story for business. I would say no less than 20 times a day we get to tell the story, said Sean Merchant, co-owner of Smokin' Windmill Barbecue. Merchant and his business partner opened Smokin' Windmill Barbecue about two years ago. Our top-selling item, specialty item that we run every day, is the UFO. It's a poblano pepper stuffed with brisket and cream cheese wrapped in bacon. There are the Anchor Restaurant for other, another business called Martian Margaritas. 
It's an alien-themed entertainment venue. It's a cool story and great for business, Merchant said. Great for conversation. We like to get our know our, we like to get to know our guests and everything, and it always see, gives us an opportunity to meet them uh, if they're new. So the story of Ned the Alien lives on, loved by locals. We love this town, and we love the history of our town with the alien, Merchant said. An alien named Ned putting Aurora on the map. Pretty interesting, too, to know if you live in an area known for an alien burial in your city. Not a lot of cities can say that. Missouri preacher says he saw dying aliens in Missouri in the 1970s. The Reverend William Huffman made a startling deathbed confession. Decades earlier, he had been involved in the cover-up of an alien spacecraft crash. According to his granddaughter, Huffman said that on April 12, 1941, he had been asked by the local sheriff in Cape Girardeau for what the Baptist minister presumed to be the administration of the last rites to a plane crash victim. A car took him 18 miles outside of the town to a farmer's field where Huffman beheld the wreckage around Silver Disc. As firefighters doused the last of the flames, Huffman spotted through a gaping hole in the craft the bodies of two dead aliens and a third one struggling to breathe. Army Air Corps arrived from Saxton Field and cordoned off the area and swore everyone to secrecy and confiscated any pictures. Local researcher Michael Huntington told uh, KSFV TV News, There were pictures allegedly taken that night of men holding one of the alien bodies and somewhere out there are those pictures. Huffman knew that he couldn't administer last rites and kept the secret until his final hours, according to Huntington, until the granddaughter went public. This story, whether you believe it or not, is part of Cape Gerardo's history, Huntington said. It's part of our culture. It's part of our regional folklore. And it's part of a broader history of UFOs, which is a part of American history. was called the rural visitor as a kid back in the 80s i was spending the night at my aunt and uncle's house which was out in the sticks in tennessee i was sleeping on the couch and woke up due to a bright light coming through the kitchen window and into the living room i was looking toward the light which was white and silently flickering after about 10 minutes i turned my head as it was now keeping me awake. After a few minutes, I turned my head back toward the light and was about to go to sleep on the low seat. I see a tall, dark figure standing between myself and the light. I was frozen and could not move or scream. It approached me, reaching out, and began tapping on my forehead with what felt like a nail or something pointed. This went on another few minutes until I must have fallen asleep or was put to sleep. I woke up the next morning to a quiet house. 
I went into the bathroom and had a red spot on my forehead. My skin was slightly broken, but no blood. So here is an extra bonus treat for you, listeners. Instead of just telling you some alien stories, here are some alien voices from movies and some supposedly real alien voices. First, we'll start with um alien voice from the 1982 movie E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Phone home. E.T. phone home. This next clip comes from the 1997 movie Men in Black, and I can't believe it's been 25 years since that movie came out. Anybody that didn't uh, see this movie yet, please go see Men in Black. And this scene right here is when uh, veteran agent Tommy Lee Jones is introducing new agent Will Smith. Uh, he's showing him the uh, way around the office, and they go into the break room, and there's a bunch of uh, alien worm guys hanging around the coffee maker. And here we go. How you doing, bro? That's no decaf, is it? Oh, don't tell me we only got that powder stuff for cream again. I hate that stuff. No, the thing is a twacker. Oh, it's good. Good, good. You guys get along all right? Nope. Don't work too hard. Sure you don't want some coffee? This next clip is not necessarily an alien, but it's from the 1977 movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind when the humans are trying to communicate with the mothership by using um, lights and music. Remember this one? Now, I remember, as soon as I got home, little nerdy Jimmy ran to the piano, and I would not go to sleep until I learned those five notes. And I kept playing them over and over again. My mother was probably ready to make a phone call. But I um, eventually got over that stage, and let's go. Let's do a couple more. Now, this guy didn't speak too much alien language on the TV show, but he claims to be from Orc. So uh, this is Robin Williams as Mork meeting the Fonz and Laverne. 
to him, please. Nano, 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 nano. Yeah, well, you know, I gotta go now because uh, two stomachy sprouts, you know what I mean? Nano, nano. Oh, Earth humor. Ah, ah, ah. Thanks, did you fix me up with another jerk? Oh, jerk. My ear, my eye, my eye. Was jerk good? Oh, yes, yes. That was a fine jerk. <laughs> We, we could do these all day. There's a lot of them. But uh, this last one is from the 2002 movie Signs, when it appears that um, the aliens are communicating to the uh, family in that farmhouse with the uh, baby monitor. So here's a little clip from that scene. There's two of them talking. Now, what I'd like you guys to do, no matter what you're doing right now, if you're at work, in the car, in a store, um, I want you to just start. How do you think an alien sounds? And I want you to do it right now, wherever you are, and record it, and send it to us in dark places. Thank you. Sometimes you run across um, alien stories that seem to be a little too good to be true. So, here are some that have been proven to be hoaxes. For decades, shocking UFO sightings have caused sensations, and they only turn out to be mistakes or outright fabrications. The frozen dead alien that a pair of Russian men found in the Siberian snow back in 2011, that was actually chicken skin stuffed with breadcrumbs. The men said that they intended it as a practical joke. They didn't know that it was going to go viral on YouTube. Me and Jimmy have been discussing the video that supposedly shows an alien interview. That's a pretty interesting thing there. Here's a sound clip of it. Okay, so let me get this straight. There's no death, and we all experience each other's lives, right? Okay, so how was the universe created, and why is it so perfectly made for us? So yeah, that's supposedly an alien talking, and I'll put that link on the description so you can check that video out for yourself and see what you think of it. Is it real or is it a hoax? We're kind of 50-50 on that one. We don't know. The most notorious story is a 17-minute black-and-white movie said to be documenting a top-secret autopsy of an alien recovered from a flying saucer crash near... Roswell in 1947. Featured in 1995 in an American television show called Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, the film became a sensation and catapulted the show to impressive ratings with nearly 12 million viewers. In 2006, the entrepreneur who claimed to have obtained the footage admitted that it was a fake, but then alleged that it was just a reconstruction of an actual autopsy that he viewed in 1992, with a few frames from the real footage included. But decades later, 
English magician and filmmaker Spiros Mularis, who says he created the alien from cow and lamb parts and used old medical equipment for the autopsy, confessed that it was a hoax. I would like to say now that there is a big part of me that feels remorse, he said. I underestimated the response. The reality is that everybody in the UFO community took this film as a smoking gun. Proof of UFOs and aliens. Anytime you get a video or picture or any recording of UFOs or aliens, there's always controversy surrounding it. So this is something I came across. The first ever alien voice recording transmitted to NASA's Mars rover. And apparently, what happened? In 1977, NASA sent two Voyager probes into space where they've uh, explored for almost 40 years. These probes were each sent on their journey with a message, a gold-plated copper disc that holds sounds and images that represent life on Earth. According to the Shive Project, the message has been answered. The video claims that an unknown signal was first detected in 2005 by the Opportunity Mars rover, but not successfully recovered until 2012 by the Curiosity rover. But there are no records of the Mars rovers detecting such a response, and the cliched message has even alien hunters questioning its authenticity. The video's creator, Victor, has said on YouTube, You can believe me or not, this is not a problem, but please respect my work and the risks I took. So this is uh, the recording. think of that well an online poll between facebook and twitter uh between is this a real alien for the uh answer hell yeah 59 percent said it's real and nope 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 41 percent uh people didn't think this was a genuine voice um this is what the um that garbled voice you heard uh, supposedly said hello i am shive i received your message I come from a world far away from yours. You are not alone. I hope you receive mine. I hope you understand my message. I try to learn your language. Now I am explorer, voyager, creator. You are my first contact. I am not your enemy. I come in peace. Uh, anybody knows uh, anything more about this 
voice let us know. And this this portion of In Dark Places was brought to you by our friend Oliver. I think he's about four or five years old. Sorry, Oliver. And now, back to In Dark Places. In a new book, retired Air Force Major claims Alien was killed at Joint Base in McGuire Dix, Lakehurst, by Eric Larson. Thanks, Eric. Was an alien shot and killed in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey? The new book titled Strange Craft, the True Story of an Air Force Intelligence Officer's Life with UFOs claims that a military police officer shot an extraterrestrial being at Fort Dix in the early morning hours of January 18, 1978. In the book by author John L. Guerrera, retired Air Force Major George Fowler III, a decorated former intelligence officer from the 21st Air Force Military Aircraft Command at the adjacent McGuire Air Force Base, recounts the extraordinary tale from America's disco age. Fowler, now 84 and living in Medford with his wife, Janet, said, What has been an urban legend first made up by UFO enthusiasts since the 80s is indeed true. That's because he was there and wrote a top-secret memo about it. In the freezing winter darkness of that day in January 1978, a bipedal creature described as about four feet in height and grayish-brown in color with a fat head, long arms, and slender body was shot to death with five rounds of a service member's 45 caliber handgun. As Guerrero explains in his book, the soldier had originally been in a police pickup truck driving through the wilderness of the base in pursuit of a strange low-flying aircraft that had been observed passing through the military installation's airspace at about 2 a.m. that morning. About an hour into the drive, the soldier became aware that the craft, oval-shaped and radiating a blue-green glow, was hovering directly over his vehicle. That's when the creature emerged from the shadows on foot, revealing himself to the soldier by stepping into the beams of the vehicle's headlights, where the panicked MP drew his weapon, ordered the alien to freeze, and he fired. According to the retired major, as told in the book, the alleged alien succumbed to the gunshot wounds on the Air Force side of what is now Joint Base McGuire-Dix-Lakehurst in Burlington County. Its remains giving off a foul-smelling, ammonia-like stench. Later that morning, a cleanup crew from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio flew in to retrieve the body behaving as if the creature was not entirely alien to them. The Asbury Park press reached out to the Air Force at the joint base for comment about the story, but never heard back. Filer, who has most recently served as a state director from the organization called MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, which catalogs and investigates UFO sightings throughout the United States, never actually saw the dead alien. However, Fowler said he knows for a fact that the story is true. It should be noted that Fowler has claimed to have seen UFOs 
throughout his entire life, starting when he was five years old outside his boyhood home in Illinois. On that January morning of 1978, Fowler said he arrived on the base before dawn to prepare his 8 a.m. intelligent briefings for his superior officers. In the book, he explains that when he arrived, security at the base had been tightened and he personally observed the emergency response in the aftermath of the incident. He also said he interviewed some of the witnesses from the scene of the report on what happened that he was required to file. However, he was denied access and was never cleared to see the photos that he said were taken at the scene. The senior master sergeant runs everything from who sweeps the floors to organizing the staff schedules and making sure phones and faxes are up and running. Fowler is quoted in the book. He was agitated. His face was pale and his eyes were wide open. And then he said the strangest thing. An alien had been shot at Fort Dix and they found it on the end of our runway. Fowler said he replied, Was it an alien from another country? No, it was from outer space. A space alien, the sergeant explained. There are UFOs buzzing around the pattern like mad. Later, the Air Force classified everything as top secret and silenced the witnesses through national security restrictions. And good old-fashioned intimidation. Everyone, that is, except for Fowler. Fowler has spoken publicly about the 1978 incident before, and the incident itself has been subject of discussion and speculation in the UFO enthusiast community since the early 80s. Details about it appear to have been first reported in the Trention on July 10, 2007. The Trention had reported 12 years ago that the Air Force repeatedly denied the claim, telling the newspaper that the case was discredited as a hoax years ago. Aliens or not, what happened at McGuire Air Force Base on January 18, 1978? Whatever it was, it's now a part of folklore of the Pinelands and beyond. This story is called Abducted by Aliens, Believers Tell Their Stories, and it was written by Juju Chang and Jim Dubrul. So thanks, Juju and Jim, for this story. Um, it says, experiencers say extraterrestrials abducted them and haunted their lives. On August 17, 2009, in a small New England town, members of a support group which boasts a growing membership of 1,500, gather for a secret meeting. I want to let you know that you are not alone, the group leader begins. Twin sisters, Audrey and Debbie, who have asked their last names in hometown be withheld, have also come a long way to share their experiences. It was a long, tiresome battle, Audrey said. It's impacted my life tremendously. I'm still in therapy. 
The groups that assembled for this meeting is not struggling with alcohol, drugs, sex addiction, or gambling. They're part of Starborn, an alien experience and awareness support group, catering to those who say they've been abducted by aliens. Many people have wondered, are Earthlings living on a speck of dust alone in the infinite universe, or are there other intelligent life forms out there in the cosmos? Nearly half of all Americans and millions more globally believe we're not alone. According to a 2000 ABC poll, while 40 million Americans say they have seen or known someone who has seen an identified flying object or UFO, a growing number believe they've actually met aliens. So Audrey and Debbie not only said that aliens exist, but that they've made contact with them. The twins said it started when they were young. I was probably about five years old or so, and a bright blue light would come into the room and the door would open and there would be like a foggy kind of misty blue light just shining through the whole house, Audrey said. And these two figures would come in. There would be a tall one. They had black capes, but they were bald and had big eyes. Audrey and her sister called their visitors the bald men, but they're better known in the UFO circles as the greys, a race of extraterrestrials categorized by the grayish color of their skin. The twins' first encounter with aliens, they say, came during childhood and continued into adulthood. They also believe they've been abducted together on the same spaceship, only to compare stories afterwards. We have been going, we have been together on abductions, Audrey said. We have been up in the crafts and seen our house from above, so we realized they are not from here. They are very good at mind erasing, or whatever you want to call it. They'll leave you with bits and pieces of things you can remember, so we do remember certain things of being there together. When asked why aliens would continue to abduct them together, the twins had no explanation. That's the question I always ask myself, Debbie said. A lot of times I'll wake up in tears saying, why me, why me? Why can't this happen to somebody else? No matter what anybody else believes, people like Audrey and Debbie are convinced that what they witnessed is real. I remember one time being on a spaceship and standing there on the spaceship and the floor and the walls disappeared and I was staring at the earth, Debbie said. They said they realized their stories sound too fantastic and at times like the stuff of sci-fi blockbusters. In science fiction, aliens are often anthropomorphic and benign creatures like E.T., My Favorite Martian, Star Trek TV series, and uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But extraterrestrials can also embody people's fears looking radically different from human life. Pop culture depictions of aliens don't seem to be slowing down on cable there's an acclaimed miniseries called Torchwood, Children of Earth, where the alien sinister thoughts are spoken through possessed children. And this fall, ABC will add a new series to the list of those creatures from outer space. The members of Starborn believe, however, that this is not just a stuff of science fiction, but fact. They said that coming forward with their beliefs is changing. Terrell Copeland, a former U.S. Marine, traveled the farthest to attend the secret meeting, Secret is in quotations. Driving 600 miles from rural Virginia, Copeland's foray into the paranormal began two years ago with a UFO sighting he said was captured on a cell phone from his apartment in downtown Suffolk, Virginia. It was an orb of light, he said, just a big ball of light. It wasn't moving. One was solid white, the other directly across the street from it. Up 300 feet above the ground, it was changing colors very rapidly. This is not usual. Something's wrong here. 
Maybe I'm in over my head. I'm not supposed to be looking at this stuff. Copeland, 27, who drives forklifts in a warehouse for a living, recalled thinking. For a while, but after the video of what Copeland said he witnessed in the sky was posted on YouTube, he had a strange visitor come to his front door. I woke up from a nap, and by the sound of someone trying to enter my apartment, he said, Who is it? And there was no answer. Still, just so you know, you could see the doorknob moving and like a scratching at the door. And I keep a firearm. It was on my table, and I, my thought was to get up and check. I was in complete paralysis. The only things I could move were my eyes, and I heard a voice through the door say, You don't need that weapon. We won't harm. Soon after, Copeland said he started experiencing what he calls missing time. During a span of two nights, Copeland said he missed four hours, not as a result of sleep. When you see these objects, and then you do the research, and you see that there are so many people who have experienced the same thing as you, you have to say to yourself, maybe there is something to this, he said. With the number of unexplained UFO sightings mounting, Copeland began keeping a log and sketching of what he believes he witnessed during the Missing Time episodes. I was in a room and I saw a woman who did not have complete human features, he recalled from the night he said he was abducted in 2006. She had the typical black eyes that you hear about. She had an elongated skull, and that startled me. And the next memory I have is me standing on my balcony, waving at the cylinder-shaped ship. Copeland said that his experiences with aliens have spiritually transformed him. I just want to be a better person because if I feel if someone from above took notice of me, then maybe I'm doing something right. And if I'm doing something right, maybe I could do it better. Copeland's otherworldly convictions are shared by thousands of believers. Hundreds flocked to the National Convention of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, in Denver this month to share their experiences with like-minded believers. Stace Tussle, a single working mother and cum laude college graduate, has been reluctant to talk about her close encounters with extraterrestrials. I'm not necessarily fearful, she said. I'm a bit nervous and how people may react. I do believe that I have experienced contact with non-human intelligence, Tussle said, and has the videos and scars to prove it. So there's support groups for aliens out there, people. The year is 1979. The aftermath of the battle left 60 humans killed in action and an untold number of the enemy's troops mortally wounded. It was the U.S. Army Special Forces' greatest threat, and no one would ever know about it. Green Berets were dispatched to Dulce, New Mexico to keep alien forces underground and away from the rest of the world. They succeeded, but at what cost? At least, this is the way explosive engineer Philip Schneider tells his part of the story. He tells it from the grave, because he's dead. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he was at New Mexico that year, and he knows the alien threat was real. Schneider claimed that he was working on a secret underground base on the Chicarilla Apache Reservation in New Mexico, near Dulce, a Colorado border town. He told the Huffington Post he first became suspicious of the project's true intention 
when he noticed American Special Forces operating around the area. They don't just send Green Berets to New Mexico for no reason. Schneider alleged that great aliens were conducting bizarre medical experiments on mankind, both live humans and samples of DNA. He said that deep underground, the greys would absorb human and cow blood for substance. Schneider finally came out with his story in the mid-90s, and two years later, he supposedly killed himself, a suicide that has some shouting foul play. At the time, the engineer said he began construction on the underground base just like he would any other base, by drilling holes. This time, however, an acrid smell like burning garbage emerged from the drilled holes. That's when the fighting started. Then, one day, he turned around and came face to face with what he called a seven-foot-tall, stinky, gray alien. Immediately, the engineer grabbed his pistol and took two of them down. The third one blew off some of his fingers. And if I remember correctly, there was three fingers missing with a kind of laser blaster. And that's when one of the Green Berets sacrificed himself to save Schneider's life. The scuffle turned into a full-blown battle that killed 60 humans. Green Beret reacted instantly, bringing all the firepower they could bear on the aliens. The aliens responded by shooting blue bolts of radiant power with movements of their hands. The kind of bolts that blew Schneider's fingers off were turning the Special Forces soldiers inside out. Eventually, the aliens relented, retreating deeper into the complex. What happened in the years that followed is anyone's guess. Before his death, Schneider alleged that there were more than 1,400 of these underground bases all over the world, each with a price tag of a billion dollars. The 192 bases inside the U.S. are also said to be interconnected. While there is no further information on what started the underground alien war, or if it continues to this day, residents of nearby Dulce attest to strange happenings in the area near the base. This is a special bonus treat for you guys. Um, these are some songs, and there's hundreds of them, but um, I just want to share a few songs with you guys that um, are about aliens. And this first one is by the Kelly family. It's called Fell in Love with an Alien. This one's called E.T. by Katy Perry. seeming uh, like I'd be luckier if I was an alien. 
Um, how about this one? I had this. This was one of my first record albums that I had as a kid, and I had no idea because I don't listen to the words um, that this was about UFOs and aliens. Come sail away by sticks. And then, how about this one? Wow, this one is by the Carpenters. I think it's a cover version, but it's called Calling Occupants of Interplanetary Craft. Half messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think. Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft And here's a little bit of speech, Space Age Love Song by Flock of Seagulls, 1982. This one's probably my favorite alien song. Uh, 1972, David Bowie, Starman. was just thinking remember those old ktel uh commercials on tv like these 12 songs about summertime could be yours for 11 cents they should have came up with an album about ufos and aliens we all would have bought one anyways this last one um i attended this concert in new haven when they filmed it for an hbo uh concert and sammy hagar announced he just was standing on the stage and said this next song is about aliens i had no idea it was about aliens until he announced it and then he started singing this little ditty Tell presents Alien Love, 14 timeless classics about aliens, all available on 
a two-disc set available for the first time ever through the special offer. You'll get all the grades, such as Space Age Love Song, Loving the Alien by Velvet Revolver, Starman, Roswell's Spell by Chevelle, Purple People Eater, Zero Zero UFO by the Ramones. You'll get all this and so much more for only four installments of $19.99. No COD fees. Please allow $29.95 for shipping. This offer isn't available anywhere else. Order now. Operators are standing by. across this story on one of these uh, alien abductee um, message boards. I thought it was interesting. I was 10 years old and will never forget what I saw that day. This was my first encounter and my scariest. I have had two encounters since. So we were camping and I woke up in the tent and it was hot. The sun was beating down on the tent. So I woke up threw the sleeping bag off, and sat up. I looked around, and laying next to my friend Mandy, up against the tent, was this small red alien. I did know it wasn't human. I would say it looked like the size of a two- or three-year-old child. It appeared to just be laying next to Mandy sleeping, and had no eyelids, just these big black bug eyes. It laid motionless like it was asleep. I saw the chest rise and fall. I got the impression it was sleeping. It was bright red in color, like red, giant letters, and its skin was shiny. Its legs and arms were skinny, no fat or muscle, definition at all. It looked like it was starving, bony. For its ears and noses, just slits, no hair anywhere. The eyes were scary. I watched it wondering if it was seeing me. I remember looking at it thinking, I'm glad it's a baby, because if this was an adult alien, I would really be in trouble. I guess the size made my 10-year-old mind think it was less threatening. I got back into my sleeping bag and laid as still and as quiet as I could be, just listening and sweating, scared out of my mind. I laid there for what seemed forever until I heard my sister and Mandy wake up. I flew out of my bag and looked around. It was gone. I hadn't heard it unzip the tent to leave absolutely no sound came from why I lay and waited. I unzipped the tent, and while leaving the tent down by the river, I saw a UFO. It was mushroom-shaped with an off-white color and had windows all the way around it. And it had legs, really interesting stilt legs, like a spider. The stilts were holding it upright in uneven ground. It was so amazing. I ran super fast to get my dad panicked, and I mean panicked, brought my dad back, and it was gone. My dad didn't believe me. I was so defeated. I have never been one to make up stories like that. I was a shy kid. Um, I was so upset that he didn't believe me, and he never has. 
I even swore in the Bible from what I saw was real. I was grateful that we were leaving that afternoon, or I think I would have went absolutely freaked if I had to stay another night there. My dad may not have believed me, but my sister did. I don't know why it was so important to be believed by my dad, but it always has been for me. This happened 36 years ago, and I remember it like yesterday. I don't think I'll ever forget. Kind of kooky story, isn't it? Now, this one makes me wonder. So, let's see what you guys think about this one. Stan Romanek is an ardent ufologist, self-proclaimed alien abductee, and noted starseed. His claim to fame is the sheer breadth of evidence he has collected over the years proving the existence of aliens, including hundreds of photos, videos, audio recordings, drawings, and math equations. He claims he could not or should not know. He is most famous for what is commonly known as the Boo video, which purportedly captures an alien peeping into Romanek's window. And for those of you who have not seen the Boo video, I'll put a link in the description and on the YouTube version of this episode. Romanek claims that he is a very important person and that the aliens have picked him specifically to bring their message to the people of Earth. He claims to be a frequent flyer with at least one of the many alien species that frequent our planet. He also claims to have another family, including none alien-human-hybrid children. Like all starseeds, Stan injects a sizable amount of spirituality into his ufology. Stan's aforementioned space family and space kids came as quite a shock to his wife, Lisa. Being so distant, however, she was able to cope with the news until Stan met his space wife at an Earth convention. His space wife turned out to be a younger human woman whom Stan regularly spends private time with. Lisa, no doubt, on the receiving end of a sustained gaslighting campaign, has learned to accept Stan's space wife into their family. The Boo video is a grainy but surprisingly stable video of a suspiciously immobile, expressionless alien head peeping up into Romanek's window, carried Stan to superstardom after it appeared on Larry King Live in 2008. The grainy but surprisingly stable video of an expressionless alien head popping up into Romanek's window. Only its head is visible, it does not blink, and the mouth seems to move, but otherwise the alien is expressionless, motionless, and quite lifeless. Stan filmed a follow-up video of another alien peering into his house from a sliding door. It is also motionless and expressionless, and it includes the head, neck, chest, and an arm, and some of the body, before it slides out of sight without swinging its arms or turning its head. Stan runs to the window in an effort to look for the creature, but never gets an angle from outside the window. 
Stan is most noteworthy of his massive collection of photos, video, audio recordings, and more in his quest to prove the existence of aliens. Some people say he's a hoax, putting plenty of effort and planning into each piece without much forethought on how to convince people. Much of the video work is standard low definition, shaky cam. The sheer volume of his evidence is often enough for other ufologists to believe him outright, with many often citing some variation of an appeal to probability as being more than enough to put him over the tipping point into belief of their authenticity. He released a documentary called Extraordinary, the Stan Romanek Story, back in 2013. And in 2014, he was arrested for doing some bad things with children. In 2017, he was found guilty of possession, but not guilty of distribution of those bad things. But the thing to me is, like, wouldn't that be standard man in black type thing to silence someone? Pin some kind of a weird uh, scandal on him to try to bring him down and stick him in jail to shut him up? What do you guys think? Is Stan the real deal? Or was he framed by the government? Because, like, in the olden days, they would just kill you pretty much. Like our... Friend Phil Schneider, who accidentally hung himself with a piano wire. So, like, people began getting suspicious of all these deaths and suicides and accidental running into trees and stuff while they're driving home from work. So, like, they had to change their game plan and start pinning these weird scandals on people. Does that make sense? What do you guys think? Did Stan really see these aliens? Or was he just making the whole thing up to make money? So, did you ever hear of the Space Acorn? On December 9th, 1965, in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, a fiery object rockets across the night and crashes into the woods northeast of rural Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. Some say that it's a copper-colored spacecraft, maybe 15 feet long, encircled by a band of writing like Egyptian hieroglyphics. The army arrives within hours throws a tarp over the thing, and hauls it away on a flatbed truck. Everyone in town is told to forget about it. And almost everyone did. Fast forward to 1990, the TV show Unsolved Mysteries comes to Kecksburg to make a docudrama about the obscure UFO. Since this was before the days of inexpensive uh, CGI effects, the producers built a life-size replica to use in their shots. After reviewing the sketchy first-hand accounts, they created uh, the Space Acorn. When the film crew leaves town, the awkward prop is left behind. Kecksburg bolts it to the roof of the town's truck barn and forgets about it for another 15 years. 2005. The 40th anniversary of the crash. Attitudes in Kecksburg are shifting. The town has heard about Roswell and uh, Area 51's UFO tourism bonanzas. It realizes that the space acorn could be grown into something profitable. The oblong UFO is repaired and repainted an unfortunate shade of brown, making it look even more like an acorn. It's taken off the roof and hoisted 
atop a pole on a very visible hillside lit by spotlights at night. A UFO store is opened across the street in the back of the fire department's social hall and bar. Ron Struble, head of the fire department's UFO committee, sums up the town's epiphany. If we can make a few bucks on this and help pay for the $300,000 truck, that's what we're going to do. We visited with Ron and with Stan Gordon, possibly the world's leading space acorn expert. Didn't know there was one. On the grassy hill beneath the replica, Stan surveys the acorn with a critical eye. Yeah, should be longer, and the crown on this one's a little too wide. But it's very close. If you really look at it, it looks exactly like the capsules on our early space flights. Ron was in a town south of Kecksburg on the night the acorn landed, and recalls his neighbors seeing the bright streak across the rural skies. Stan meticulously chronicles the sequence of events for us, the roles of various witnesses and participants, some whom only came forward decades later, painting a picture of a bizarre extraterrestrial encounter and military cover-up. Fireman Ron defers to UFO researcher Stan on nearly all of the UFO historical details. While Stan has a researcher's earnestness about the acorn, Ron seems both bemused and pragmatic. Whatever happened on that night in 1965, there are souvenirs to buy now. Ron points north along the street and says that thing came down on the far side of that nearby hill. The street was renamed Meteor Road in honor of the event, and copies of its green sign are for sale in the UFO store. They just can't keep them on the post. If they're going to steal them, might as well sell them. The UFO store, although not yet bursting with merchandise, does have the advantage of being open whenever the bar is open, which is seven days a week long into the night. The Space Acorn art on its t-shirt t-shirt they sell is well done and Stan's 90-minute documentary DVD, Kecksburg, The Untold Story, is a popular item. Kecksburg is still getting comfortable with its UFO heritage and the firefighters are nervous about their role as flying saucer boosters. We're trying to keep this thing so it doesn't turn into a wacko museum, Ron says. He doesn't want the store to sell any little green men merchandise, although the lady behind the bar told us that people ask for that kind of stuff all the time. I want one. 2008 marked another turning point in Kecksburg. The first year, the Space Acorn was invited into the town's annual Old Fashioned Days. The festival was previously known only for its bed races and burnout contests, where cars are chained to a concrete pad and spin their wheels until they burn up the tires. But now, it's a UFO event as well, inviting experts into town to share their insights. I want the researchers like Stan, said Ron, I want to bring in the good people, so there's a little bit of stability and thinkability to this whole thing. Of course, if it was up to us, we'd have people in squirrel costumes attack the bed race, then drag researchers to their radioactive nut cache. Next on Kecksburg Agenda is a UFO-themed cafeteria selling UFO burgers and UFO fries. An expanded UFO store will include souvenir miniatures of the Space Acorn, which will look great displayed next to souvenir miniature Space Monsters if the store starts stocking everything that its fans really want. It kind of worked out pretty nice for us, Ron said of his town's belated fame. I don't know if you're a believer or not. I don't care if it's ever solved. Just buy my shirts, buy my stuff here. And, you know, I apologize. This was an alien-themed episode. I didn't 
I didn't really hear about any aliens here, but uh, interesting story. The Kecksburg UFO. Hey, and speaking of our friend Stan Gordon, he just released his fourth casebook, Creepy Cryptids and Strange UFO Encounters of Pennsylvania. The fourth book in this series is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And I can't wait to grab this one and add it to my collection. That's about all the time we have this week. We sure hope you enjoyed the show. If you got a true creepy story you'd like to share and be a guest on the show, send an email to indarkplacespod at hotmail.com. Thank you, Mr. Haunted, and thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week. God bless you. I'm listening to the Aliens episode. I had to start it over a couple times already. Uh, just because of work and stuff. And, and naps, of course. And uh, I was listening to it at work. And somebody walked by and they said, Are you listening to yourself? And I said, Yes. Do you ever listen to yourself? And then people say, Are you listening to yourself? Anyway, put that in the show.